This is an ABC podcast. Today's conversation includes content that might be upsetting. Please take care when listening. Daniel Malbasa grew up in a country that no longer exists. His family lived on a little farm that sat on the banks of the Danube River in the former European nation of Yugoslavia. But as Daniel got a little older, cracks started to deepen in his corner of the world. And the Malbasa family sat directly on top of one of the many fault lines. His Serbian father had married Daniel's Croatian mother. They had four children in this mixed marriage, which meant it would be impossible for the kids to pick a side in the coming wars. Daniel went from having family holidays on a sunny Croatian island to sleeping every night with his shoes on, fully clothed, in case they had to run in the middle of the night. Daniel's father died two years into the war, and it was his mother who steered her children to safety. And after five long years in a Serbian refugee camp, they arrived in Adelaide. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Richard. Where was home for you, specifically in the former nation of Yugoslavia, when you were really young? Yeah, so home was uh, present-day Croatia, but it was really the Dalmatian coast. I was sort of born on the fault lines between the Ottoman Empire and the Habsburg Empire, so in a place called Kraina, which means borderline, and was raised um, in an ethnically mixed marriage. So this was a Serbian enclave within the larger Croatian territory, is that right, Daniel? Yes, that's right. Quite a sizable minority in Croatia. I mean, we were a Serbian minority, but it was a very large minority. I was one of those uh, children that had to learn both the Cyrillic Serbian and the Latin Croatian script uh, because uh, my mom was a Catholic Croat and dad was an Orthodox Serb. So if you came from a mixed marriage, you kind of had these classes where the kids who were in a mixed marriage had to additionally study uh, the Cyrillic script while the Croatian Catholic kids who were entirely Croatian, both parents, were Croats. They didn't really have to bother (laughs) with the Cyrillic. So I learned both scripts from very young age. Was it like Northern Ireland? Like in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, you couldn't tell who was Catholic and who was Protestant by looking at them or even by hearing their voices. You had to find out their name or some, or there'd be some other kind of giveaway. Could you tell apart mm. Serbs and Croats just from hearing their voice or looking at them in any way? You very much so could. Croats spoke with that. It's a word called Jekovica. So, for example, to say down, Serbs would say dole, Croats would say doli, or uh, beautiful, uh, Serbs would say uh, lepa, Croats would say lipa. Right. So this <laughs> so is like the slight accentu- accentuation in the in the words here and there that could, you can definitely, but also with names as well. You know, like my mom is called Yeka, which is a very Croatian name. The Serbian equivalent is Yelena. So there are those differences. So you were a little boy living with your family in a Serbian enclave inside breakaway Croatia with a Serbian father and a Croatian mother. How had your parents met and been able to overcome that divide? 
So they met in the late 1970s. I mean, this was during the period of Yugoslavia. So Yugoslav life was uh, oppressive, but not repressive. The youth had a lot more freedom to meet and gather, and that was in- encouraged. And my parents, they were able to socialize and meet, and they met at one of these like music festivals that was organized by their community. Young people would get together and dance the kolo, which is kind of similar to a Greek zorba. And my dad would just make sure that he grabbed my mom's hand uh, wherever she was in the kolo, like in a circle dance. And she would kind of run away from him and he would chase after her, grab her hand again. She would break off, run somewhere else, and he would go and chase after her again. And that's kind of how they met. But it happened really quickly, the the way they sort of got engaged. Literally a fortnight after that, he went to my mum's parents and just said, you know, I'm really enamoured with your daughter (laughs) and uh, I would like to propose to her and, (laughs) you know, uh, marry her. And that's how they got together. It was really quite quick. So they fell in love really quickly and got married. Your Catholic Croatian grandparents didn't have a problem with an Orthodox Serb wanting to marry their daughter? Yeah, see, my mum's parents uh, did not have any issues with it because they were, you know, communists, I guess. Um, They really had no uh, qualms about that. But my mum's brother did sort of ask my dad, so what saint do you worship? You know, what church do you go to? How do you cross yourself? And my dad was like, well, yeah, I am Orthodox Serb. And, you know, I crossed myself with three fingers and my Slava, which is this like Thanksgiving that Serbs have, uh, is called St. Nicholas on the 19th of December. But my, my mom's brother was like, well, look, so long as you treat her with decency and respect, it doesn't matter who you are, just as, as long as you love our daughter and our sister. Daniel, when you look back in your memory and you see your parents together, how were they with each other? They really loved each other because they had to overcome quite a lot. There's the ethnicity, one being a Croat, one being a Serb. There's also the religion. Uh, but also, you wouldn't think this, but it's, there's actually class even dividing, even in a classless society like Yugoslavia. My <laughs> mom's family are a lot more wealthier. They had like olive groves and a lot of livestock, a lot of vineyards, whereas my father's family was more humble. So... She gave up a lot to move from this um, quite a wealthy Croat family to go and live in this remote village (laughs) with my father and his family. I remember like they really loved each other. They never fought. They really got along really well. Yeah, it was definitely a sense of safety and love that I grew up in in that embrace of, of of my parents. Do you remember the peace of those years? Yes, I do. I definitely remember going to Croatian beaches, having a very mixed, ethnically mixed friendship group. Um, It was actually quite a a peaceful childhood up to a point. I mean, I grew up in a village uh, with a lot of animals. We played hide and seek around Roman ruins and amphitheaters and these archaeological sites that we had no idea the significance that they had. But it was just quite a, you know, idealistic quite beautiful sort of childhood. But I do remember, though, that we had kind of uh, two histories in Yugoslavia. We had the official history and a private history. 
The official history was the one told to us by the Communist Party, which was we were all Yugoslavs and they were all equal, that, um, you know, we should marry each other and love each other through what our leader Tito uh, created, this, this idea of brotherhood and unity. And so that was the official history. But we also had private histories that was a lot more difficult and it was something that was spoken of privately and quietly, you know, under the cover of darkness. My Croatian family would say things about the Serbian Chetniks fighting Croats during World War II. My Serbian grand- grandparents would say things like they were occupied by the Ustashas. We were aligned with the uh, Nazis, I guess, during World War II. So there was this really, this really complicated history that just was not spoken of officially, but it was definitely there bubbling under the surface. So mm. there was a lot of dark muttering under the official history then that was going on. Was it a gradually intensifying darkness or did it feel like it just suddenly happened overnight? No, I think it was definitely gradual because I think you need to condition your people, your your citizens to start to fissure and divide along ethnic lines. It just doesn't happen overnight. You know, it started really quite subtly. You know, you'd order something at a store, in a Croatian store, and, you know, you'd use the Serbian word and you'd get corrected for that. And vice versa as well. You know, a Croatian person might buy something from a Serb store and get corrected. And there was a lot of sort of nationalist art produced around that time. There was a lot of Croatian checkers everywhere that just suddenly appeared in early 90s, hanging from windows and bridges and doors. Oh, you mean that checkered chessboard sort of image? Yeah. uh, It's in the Croatian flag. Mm, That's right, yeah. I mean, because it was associated with the independent Croatian states. There was a a Nazi puppet state. They used used the checkers, even though that's not where the checkers originated originally. But that's kind of what we associated it with, with concentration camps, with Nazi occupation. But it was also true, you know, with the Serbs, I mean, they were producing a lot of music and art and posters. They were attacking Croats and linking them back to Nazism and also not just Croats, but also Bosnian Muslims, you know, sort of aligning them with the Ottomans and the Turks and all these sort of a history that was something like 600 years old. All of that started in the early 1990s and gradually built up to what was to happen. So Croatia left, Yugoslavia, Slovenia left and others, which left Yugoslavia pretty much as a kind of greater Serbia. So if there's no more Yugoslavia, there's no more Yugoslavs. Where did that leave you and your family, Daniel? We became stateless. Our country disappeared. And not only were we stateless, but we also became, you know, internally displaced people because we had to leave Croatia after Croats um, fought the war of independence against the minority Serbs who were in Croatia. That's what made us as refugees. How conscious mm. of this were you as a six-year-old? Were your parents trying to protect you from the, the dark clouds that were kind of hovering over your country? They tried to. They sort of tried to appeal back to this idea of being Yugoslavs and, you know, respecting one another in that sort of granular family unit. But it was really difficult to maintain that when you switch on the news 
you talk to your next door neighbor and you see this this uh, racial fissuring that was sort of happening, this um, a kind of racism that was really starting to happen. It was hard to maintain that even within a, a family unit. And this is especially so in a civil war kind of context where it's um, family members versus family members, neighbors versus neighbors. And then war breaks out. Is the family called upon to pick a side? Yeah, it was really difficult for us uh, because, as I said, you know, with this ethnically mixed marriage, you really, we really were called up to pick a side. Um, and it depended which side you, you pick because it could be a matter of life and death. I mean, it was really difficult for us because what am I supposed to say? Like, which part of me is a Croat, which part of me is a Serb, you know, bottom half, lower half? But it really mattered, especially at, you know, like on borders and in the bank and the school and the post office, you have to disclose who you are. And it was a real difficulty for us um, once the war broke out. Daniel, how old were you when your father died? About uh, seven years old, yes. And how did he die? He enlisted in the, uh, so that like the guerrilla army, that was the Serbian minority of Croatia. They fought against the Croatian independence, egged on by Slobodan Milosevic from Serbia. He wanted to create, you know, greater Serbia. So my dad joined up with the armed forces and went off to war. I mean, he had no experience of being a soldier. It's very similar to what's happening in Ukraine, you know, just uh, random sort of uh, citizens all of a sudden become soldiers overnight. So he went off and served for about two years before he he died. One day in the morning, he got up and joined his teammate who was with him at the time that morning. And they set off to, to inspect the area that they've cleared. And he stepped on a landmine. It, it ended his life instantly. The guy who was with him says that the death was pretty fast. It, it sort of severed his body quite quickly, so he didn't, he didn't suffer. And the next time I saw him was uh, sort of the next day. They literally collected his body into a casket and brought it home. And, uh, yeah, I just remember coming home from school and walking uh, to, towards my house and just seeing all these people there, all of our neighbours. And uh, I actually thought my granddad passed away because uh, he was getting on with age. But then uh, the closer I got there, the more, you know, I saw that my mom had fainted, that it was actually uh, quite a lot of family members there. And, uh, you know, I walked in through the door and there was my dad there. He just had this massive hole in the side of his face that was just this, you know, massacred body that was stitched together so that he would resemble a human being. And that's kind of the lasting memory I have of him is just this this Frankenstein-like um, monstrosity there, Not doesn't really even look like my father. Oh, Daniel, did that mean that... The moment you became aware he was dead was when his ruined body was brought around in an open casket to your home. Yes, exactly. And all these years, you know, I said to my mom, why did you make me see that? <laughs> like, that's the kind of lasting image I have of him. And she's like, ah, it's war. We're not going to 
palisade anything or cover it up in in sheen and gloss. This is what it is. This is what war does. Here, have a look. This is your father. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of the lasting memory I have of him. Was there rage in you or grief or horror? What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's difficult to be sort of perspicacious when you're a seven-year-old. Yeah. But, um, you know, I just distinctly remember my Serbian grandparents turning quite nasty towards us. You know, they just would shut the door on us when we would go and visit them. They just became really antagonistic towards us and towards uh, my mom. And I was sort of thinking, why, why, how come, you know, how come this can happen overnight that your own grandparents can become so uh, difficult in, in, in sort of not being welcoming of you? And I just distinctly remember that was this, this pall of hatred that was getting quite uh, visceral. What sort of things were they saying to your mother? They would say things like, it's your fault. It's your fault that he's dead. Your people killed him. And they would do that publicly in front of others, neighbours, um, even the people that brought his body, the soldiers, you know, they would say, it's her responsibility, her people did it, she's at fault. It was just difficult, I guess, to listen to that as a seven-year-old from your own grandparents. Did any of your neighbours come to your widowed mother's assistance at this time? Yeah, very much so. They did. Um, some of some of the women, uh, they came to my mom's help because they knew that she was this woman who was there by herself, a widow with four children under the age of 14, uh, a Croat woman in a Serbian enclave. So the women of the village did come and support my mom. But some of the men, it, it was a lot more difficult. And I do remember this particular scene where there was one of the local Serbian men. He was sharpening his knife, literally his two knives, like butchering knives in front of our house. You know, we peek through the sort of the curtains and see him and he's like, there's a Croat woman in here. She needs to come out. You know, I'm going to behead her. Um, so it was a bit of a mix. I think the women sympathized with my mother, but the men were a lot more difficult How's your mum doing at this time, given that she'd lost her much-loved husband and she was suddenly a pariah in her own community? Yeah, so she became a bit of a recluse uh, sort of immediately after the death. She just went into her bedroom, wore black clothes nonstop. There was no music. We had to look after ourselves and run the farm. So she really struggled quite a lot because even her own family, the Croats, you know, they just stopped contacting us. We couldn't reach them. Um, she really was completely alone in this um, hellhole, I guess. How did she prepare you to live in a war zone? So she was actually quite practical in the sense that she would make sure that we sleep fully clothed with our you know, clothes on, including our shoes, that we went to bed fully dressed. She also put up timber cladding all over the window to stop the shrapnel because we had a lot of shrap- shrapnel coming through We'll get stuck in the timber. She would go and find basements so that we could uh, escape into those and sleep overnight if the bombing got really or the shelling got really bad. So she was quite a practical mother in that sense, just constantly uh, making sure that she stays one step ahead. She was quite formidable in that way. People living in a war zone, they stay in this extended situation in their minds where the fight or flight 
response is always on. You must have constantly been waiting for something to go bang or something, Daniel? Pretty much. So, I mean, my next-door neighbor's house, the roof got blown off and we felt the aftershock. It was very much so very close to home. And I remember, you know, once I was running to the uh, bomb shelter and I fell over and cut the left side of my thigh, like a really deep cut. And my mom had to stop the um, UN peacekeepers to transfer me to like a, a war hospital where it was stitched up. And it was done in a most graphic way because they didn't have anesthetic. So they just hacked through my body with like a, you know, a needle and a thread. And I remember just <laughs> passing out because it was so painful. And uh, the doctor was just like, look at the Mickey Mouse on your mum's shirt. You know, look at the Mickey Mouse. And I'm like, God, you know, this is torture. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, war was very close to home in that way. So it was your mum, you and your siblings, and who else was with you in this farm? Well, my dad's parents and my uncle from my dad's side. And we also had, I guess we we called them aunties and uncles, but they weren't really related to us. They were just really close neighbours uh, who lived in our village. Your grandmother was with you on your dad's side, but she was part of the Serbian minority, and your mum was a Croat. Was there hostility there, even though she was staying with you and being cared for by your mother? Yeah, I mean, there was uh, very much so hostility once the war broke out, and it's just really unfortunate, but that's what civil war does. It poisons the minds, it poisons people's attitude and behaviour towards one another. My grandmother, around this time, she was looking after her sheep, and she got hit by a a ram. He absolutely smashed her left thigh and completely broke the bone. She had to have a plate put in there and she just was disabled, couldn't walk at all. And my mom would carry her around from room to room, carrying her around the property whilst this lady, my grandmother, would just completely be incredibly racist uh, towards my mom, just uh, accuse her of being, you know, a Croat, uh, uh, responsible for my father's death, for the fact that the Croats are attacking us for this war. She was just really quite nasty. But my mom just felt she needed to help her because that's what family does. That's what you do when you're a, a daughter in law, in this Balkan culture. And where was her mm. husband, your your grandfather? He was there. He was with us. But, um, you know, he also became uh, quite a changed person after the war happened. I remember one day all of our sheep and goats were with, with them, with my grandparents. And he went around and picked all of the ones who are ours and just threw them out, threw them out on the street and said... These animals are Croatian animals, <laughs> and you need to find shelter for themselves. We don't want we don't want to deal w- w- with them. We don't want to feed them. We don't want to clean after them. We don't want to look after them. Uh, you need to find your own solution. Um, yeah, as I said, I know Richard. This is difficult to understand for some people, but that's what war does, especially civil war. It cuts right down to the family unit in the most visceral way. I can see how your mum would want to observe, just uphold simple human decency in looking after her husband's mother despite the abuse and complaints. I wonder also if she could still see something of her husband in her. 
Mm, yeah, I mean, maybe there, there was uh, a bit of that. As I said, you know, like these people grew up in post-World War II you know, Yugoslavia where there was a, a degree of, of love and respect. And I think, my, as I said, with my mom's family, they were real rusted on Yugoslavs and they just c- could not, I guess, could not really play into this sort of uh, racist framing of the conflict like my dad's family could. So, Daniel, how did your mother arrive at the decision to get out? I guess we arrived at the decision because we, we knew that the Croatian army was coming towards our village and that they were ransacking everything in their wake. And so we were literally told, you need to leave, you've got two hours. If you stay behind, you might be killed. You probably will be killed. And so she just decided, you know, and that in that in that um, flight at two a.m. in in the in the darkness with with bullets raining above us to just get us onto this trailer, uh, neighbor's trailer, and just make a run for it. Broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So your mum had made the decision to leave as the Croatian army was getting closer and closer to where you were. How did you get out of your village? Do you remember that night? Yeah, very much so. I remember we were sleeping again with all of our clothes on and shoes on and everything on. And my mum just she just sprung into action, shook us at 2am and just got us into this back of this uh, trailer attached to our tractor. And pretty much, you know, all of the village just crammed into this trailer and we just made a a run for it and joined an exodus of 300,000 people. It was like an entire country on the road, really, that was heading towards Bosnia. And what could you take with you, Daniel? Uh, Yeah, I mean, we took nothing really other than a few photos that my mom had in her bag and just some key documents and just the clothes on our back. That's it, because really, when you're a refugee, the only thing you carry with you is is your clothes and your blood, (laughs) and you run for it. So what did you have to leave behind then? We left behind all of our animals. We left behind a lot of the older people that couldn't leave, and one of those people was my grandmother, my dad's mother. And it was really quite a difficult thing to leave her there because... I mean, we assume that refugees can just spring to their feet and make a run for it. But she was a disabled woman in her 70s. She just could not could not move. And it was a really, I mean, it's not a very edifying moment for our family that we left a, a matriarch in her bed to die, to be killed. My mom wasn't able to carry her because she literally had me on one arm. She had my twin on the other arm and two 13 and 14 year olds um, at a hip what was she supposed to do put a you know an old lady on top of her back 
she just couldn't and my granddad he joined an army truck that was escaping so he just basically got into that truck and left and he left her screaming in her bed wanting to live you know wanting to survive wanting to escape and you know all these years i was given a conflicting story because i thought that she wanted to stay because she was a patriot and she wanted to die in her own bed in her own soil but no she actually wanted to live it's just that we we couldn't take her with us and i don't understand why my granddad couldn't take her but people make all sorts of decisions in that situation i don't know what decision you would make richard or anybody else but it's a really difficult situation when you're running for your life at 2am in the pitch black darkness with war raging around you and you have this family member with you that you just cannot carry so when you left your your farm you said it was just 2 o'clock in the morning you got mm. on this tractor with all these other people crammed into this trailer moving along this dark road this river of people desperate to get out before they got killed you said you were on your way to bosnia man mm-hmm. took about out of the frying pan into the fire <laughs> daniel what mm. happened when you got to bosnia Yeah so we didn't even know that there was another war happening there so this was the war between Bosnian Serbs and uh Bosnian Muslims we were there for about a month and this was during the month of July in 1995 so I'm not sure if you know Richard but there was a genocide there in Srebrenica yes, Srebrenica genocide it was one of the yeah. great war crimes of the era mm, yeah exactly 8000 men and boys were murdered And I remember we were there at a friend's like a friend's house just to kind of rest because we were just traveling for about 9 days straight without food or shower or water or any sustenance and we were actually bombed as well during that period a lot of people died during the exodus and uh, when we were in Bosnia you know we were there for about a month but I remember just like there was just shooting shooting just kakakakaka of a uh, uh, gunfire anti aircraft ground fire non-stop and a genocide was unfolding around the corner while we were there but we couldn't really stay there because it was an active war zone and we overstayed our welcome with this family so we moved on further into Serbia and where did you arrive in Serbia we arrived in a place called Novi Pazar a very islamic part of Serbia very large muslim community So we once we got there they put us in a very large factory that was like a sewing factory they just got rid of sewing machines and just put down mattresses and that's how we lived on the floor on a mattress with 700 other people like sardines next to one another one pot cooked everyone's food one hot plate for everybody just one toilet one bathroom for all of these people and it was really quite difficult for my mom because again you know she tried to apply for a war widows pension uh, from the Serbian Department of Veterans Affairs and they said to her well your husband fought for the Yugoslav army not the Serbian army and Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore and neither does your pension 
Could you go to school while you were there in Serbia? Yeah, I went to the uh, local school and that was uh, it was a very interesting experience. You know, we'd get corrected quite often because of the way we spoke, because we were a Serbian minority from Croatia. We spoke very differently to the Serbs of Serbia. It was difficult to study uh, when you're living in a crowded refugee camp without a, without room, without basics. But I was actually a pretty decent student considering everything that I've been to up to that point. I really enjoyed geography, history. We studied Russian as well, epic Serbian poetry. You know, this really long prose about the conflicts in Kosovo between the Ottomans and the Serbs that we had to learn. And I just found that, you know, it was an escape from the misery of refugee camp because I... I saw people, you know, suicide in front of me, a lot of violence to escape that milieu and going to the school for six or seven hours was therapeutic. So at this point, were you technically refugees waiting to be resettled somewhere or not? At this point, we were not refugees. In, I mean, in our case, we were internally displaced people, IDPs, oh. and millions of people who are IDPs. We didn't cross any borders. The border crossed us, really. Um, we were... <laughs> that's, that's very blackly funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mm. interesting thing about my grandmother, for example, she didn't leave her home, but she changed her nationality six times. Such is the <laughs> poorest nature of estates and arbitrary way mm. nations are made. And so what, what actually became of that grandmother that your mother had been forced to leave behind? She survived. <laughs> One of the Croatian soldiers who burst through her door, he actually knew our family. He was a friend of my grandmother's grandson. So my auntie from my dad's side, she married into a Croatian family and they, they knew each other. And he took my grandmother and took her deep inland into the Croatian um, territory and handed her to her daughter. And they said, why did you bring this old Serb woman to us when we are fighting them? We don't want her. And this is, you know, her own daughter's family is saying this. So what they did is they handed her to the United Nations peacekeepers and they took her to Macedonia. And one day when we were living in a refugee camp in Serbia, my older brother just picked up a newspaper and on the front page there was a story there about this kind of a displacement camp for people that the UN had collected and put into this centre in uh, Macedonia. And there was a photo there of a whole lot of people and in the corner of the photo was this old lady that had the sort of same kind of mien <laughs> of my grandmother, um, same shawl and she had arthritis in her hands and she was slipping on a bowl of soup. And my brother was like, oh, my God, this is our grandmother, Grandmother Sophia. You know, <laughs> she survived and said, oh. you know, there was a number there. Just give this number a call if you're missing a family member. And we called them and that was her. She had survived this um, incredible journey. And, and uh, when you contacted her, did she tell you all to get lost again? <laughs> no, actually, you. you know, she was a little bit more mellow this time. I think she realised that she was not experiencing what she was doing to my mum. 
but she was experiencing in Neves, you know, when she went to Croatia, they told her, well, you're a Serb, get out. We don't want to help you. Her own family did. So she did kind of mellow out a little bit after she saw that, you know, she was doing the same thing to my mom. But her relationship with my granddad did become a bit more difficult because essentially he left her to die. Yeah. So Daniel, how was your mum able to get you all out? Yes, yeah, so we were in this place and, you know, she was an you know, internally displaced person. We were also stateless people. She was a widow with four children. Serbian government could not offer us protection. So she went to the UNHCR office in Belgrade, which is really an optimal way to process refugees is to actually go to the office that is mandated to help refugees. So she went there and applied to go to America because we had a sponsor that was sort of helping us from from America. You know, he would occasionally send a couple of hundred bucks here and there. And we thought, okay, well, we should probably go to America. At least we'll know one person there. And the person at the UNHCR office said, you know, it's so much better if you went to Australia. They've got a really good welfare system to help you when you first get there. Really good housing. You get met at the airport. You know, people will show you the way of life. In America, there's none of that. It's a real struggle. And uh, my mom's like, okay, cross out America, put in Australia. Good enough. (laughs) And my mom had preference because she was deemed to be woman at risk which is a special visa category within the humanitarian intake. And we got approved to go to Adelaide. But, you know, there was a lot more difficulties to come as well. Yeah, you've got to get out of Serbia, don't you? Mm, That's right. So this was another war now about to start. This was the Kosovo War of Independence. So, you know, I escaped the war of um, Croatian War of Independence in 93 of 93. I was in Bosnia during the war of 95. And now there was this war between Serbs of Serbia and this semi-autonomous region called Kosovo. NATO was involved during this period. They made a decision to bomb Serbia to stop the ethnic cleansing of Albanian Kosovars in Kosovo. So this was like a third war and the airport was shut down. You couldn't leave the country. So we couldn't leave straight away. We had to stay put. During this period, I got a job with my mom at a local sort of dairy farm, just milking, hand milking, hand cows to try and survive because the aid dried up. And so it was really quite difficult for us to finally actually escape Serbia. But eventually the UNHCR got a couple of buses into Belgrade. And again, it was kind of under the cover of of darkness that they got us into these buses uh, headed for Hungary, for Budapest. But my mom was actually stopped by Serbian soldiers. And they were like, why are you gifting three soldiers to Australia? You mean you as a a potential soldier? Is that what he meant? Mm. Well, we have to do compulsory military service as boys in a couple of years' time. And my mom was like, well, I am taking my sons out of this place. You know, I don't want them to end up like their father, buried in a mass grave in a country that no longer exists. So she really ushered us quickly onto this bus and we made a hasty escape into Hungary. And from there you get onto a plane in Budapest and come to Australia. Mm. Did you know anything about Australia before you came here, Daniel? Oh, I knew a little bit about from Blinky Bill. Um, you know, the <laughs> anthropomorphic koala. 
that was about it. I mean, in Summer Heights High, we watched we watched that, which really? was an Aussie wow uh, <laughs> show. <laughs> so you'd seen that. And how old were you when you stepped off the plane? Yeah, I was twelve and a half. Didn't speak a word of English. We literally had one duffel bag between the four of us, having just spent nine years in an active war zone. It was difficult. <laughs> and who was there to meet you at the airport when you arrived? Yeah, so we had somebody from the the immigration department, this really quite lovely young lady. Uh, she met us there and she took us to her car. And this was actually, I think, my first car ride, like a proper car ride. So I couldn't tie the seatbelt. It was really quite embarrassing. I couldn't operate a seatbelt. <laughs> and yeah, so she took us to this really nice house, you know, public housing, but it was really nicely done up, beautiful beds, a fridge full of food, just distinctly remember the smell of freshly mowed, freshly cut grass. Uh, the sky was just so blue and white and the sound of birds. You know, like during the war zone in Yugoslavia, there was just no no sound of birds or wildlife at all. So it was really quite beautiful to experience that. So Daniel, then you at 12 and a half had to start going to school and, and learn English. And I presume you had very little English, and now these days you use words like anthropomorphic. So you obviously did okay in your uh, English lessons. Did you have to start in an ESL class? Yeah, we met, we met, so started with an ESL class with other children of war from Iraq, Somalia, East Timor. It was a very diverse group of children who had disrupted childhood. I remember one time our teacher asked us to point on the world map where we are from and you'd have, you know, a kid from Somalia point to Mogadishu and put a, you know, a little pin next to them. The one from East Timor would pin next to Dili, the one from Iraq next to Baghdad. And then it was my turn. And this is a map without Yugoslavia. So I just <laughs> waited by the map and just, where, what do I do? And the teacher's like, oh, um, I'll help you find it. And we search and searching, searching for it, and we can't find Yugoslavia. And she just puts a pin next to Sarajevo. And I'm like, but I'm not from there. This is Bosnia and Herzegovina. She's like, good enough. Um, you know, <laughs> so there was those sort of stories. So after you finished at the ESL school, you went to a standard school in Adelaide and did very well indeed. Now, I'm assuming that the reason why you wanted to do a law degree was your interest in the human rights aspect of law, given what you'd been through. It was partly that, uh, but also it was um, seeing my older brother who he ended up getting a job at Holden's and he was uh, bringing home these sort of pamphlets about workers' rights. And I was really quite interested in what that involved to try to keep a factory alive. This was during the time where there were mass redundancies. Uh, and I was really interested in the legal side of that. But because I went to, I guess, like a working class uh, school <laughs> or an area where very few people went to university. In fact, I was one of two people that year to go to uni when we had career advisors in year 11, year 12 they would say there's a really good TAFE course you can do or good um, training college you can go to. You know, we had organizations like Ingham's Chickens and uh, abattoir uh, businesses coming and butchers and nursing institutions looking for people to do vocational work. And I remember saying to my uh, career counselor in year 12 that I wanted to go to university. 
And she was just like, are you sure about that? You know, because she just could not see me going to university or anybody from this area. You know, she's like, there's a really good trade you can get as a butcher. You can start off butchering sort of like chickens and then move up to pigs. And I'm like, miss, you know, I really like literature. I really like learning. I think I can make it. I'd like to go to uni. And he was just assumed, if you come from this area, you will end up on a factory floor. So, you know, dream a little cheaper and name a little lower kind of thing. But I did pretty well in year 12. And I said to them, you know, I'm going to prove them wrong. And I will go to uni and I will go to law school of, of all degrees, which is probably the, one of the toughest you, you can complete. And I did. And I finished three degrees, including a master's <laughs> in law. So while you're doing law, you did an elective on international humanitarian mm. law. What did you learn about the wars you'd lived through mm. on the outside? It was really quite confronting. I mean, I didn't even know that there was such thing as the siege of Sarajevo, that it was, you know, one of the longest sieges in the history over three years. I didn't know that the the massacre of those men and boys in Srebrenica was actually a genocide. It was really quite interesting to see my country projected up on the screen. You know, a few times I had to leave the lecture theater in case I recognized somebody exhumed from the mass graves, you know, like my own family members or neighbors. And it was really quite confronting to have your own country treated as like this guinea pig to be pulled apart by these very smart law students. And one of them actually ended up going to... Geneva to the International Criminal Court for the former Yugoslavia. And she represented Ratko Mladic, who is one of the indicted uh, war criminals. He's currently serving his life sentence. Um, I mean, when you are, you know, a young sort of uh, law student or about to become a lawyer, you can't really choose who you, I mean, you do have a choice who you represent, but this was a good experience for her. Uh, she felt that she could learn a lot in terms of international human rights law and international criminal law by representing him. And he ended up actually writing this letter in Cyrillic and gave it to her. <laughs> and she brought it all the way to Adelaide and asked me to read it. And it was this letter that, that was um, from a, a war criminal, somebody who committed the biggest genocide since World War II. And his handwriting was this quite neat Cyrillic online paper, the same sort of handwriting that issued the order to murder all those men and boys. And she brought it all the way to this quiet lecture theater in Adelaide. So it was really quite interesting. It felt like I couldn't escape this war. It was like a sticky second skin that was always uh, stuck to me. So Dan, you're looking back now. It seems all your life you've been straddling borders not seen as being fully Serb, not seen as being fully Croat, held really strongly by your mum and your siblings in your immediate family, not so much by some members of the extended family. A few years ago, you came out to your family as gay, and last year you were named the inaugural winner of the Les Murray Award for Refugee Recognition. It seems so much of your life is about this tension between belonging are not belonging, who's in and who's out. What do you think about this vexed question of identity? 
and belonging. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some identities are inerasable. I mean, you can't sort of dim them or, or erase them. So like, you know, like your sexuality or your skin color, but identities are not always fixed and uh, not always necessarily the ones you are given to you at, at birth. I never thought that I'll be an Australian. I never thought that I'd be a refugee. And also, you know, I've seen how identities uh, can lead to conflict. I've seen how fissuring and siloing into identities can lead to an entire state breakdown and, and a civil war. I don't think identity is a static kind of experience. Identities change and evolve. I mean, you look at the expansive gender identities we have, and I think it's identity for me at least is a lot broader than just being a member of the LGBTIQ community or from culturally and linguistically diverse background or a refugee. It's also my interests, my the workplace that I work for, my hobbies. So I like to think of identity in terms of, you know, values and aspirations that we all share and that transcend transcend things like gender and skin and sexuality and class. It's healthier for a democracy and a country to have a more capacious sense of identity. You can you can find a home in something that is a lot more bigger and can look after those identities so we don't have to feel that we need to go into these sharp divisions that can result in something like what happened to me, where you have your own family members fighting uh, most visceral in a most visceral way. I, I've worried that sometimes identity or claiming identity very sharply can lead to conflict. How about your mum? Your mum was a woman who completely disregarded all those rules about picking a side for love, really. Mm. Is she a model in the way you think about these things? Yeah, I think so. She's somebody that really, I guess, has strong values and strong principles about treating people with decency and respect regardless of who they are. And she's really instilled this in us. Um, You know, my twin brother is married to a practicing Bosnian Muslim woman, just like my mom was married to an Orthodox Serb man. And so she never saw those sharp ethnic divisions. She was always speaking about values and principles that we share rather than identities. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much, Richard. Yeah, it was great. Daniel Mabasa is the inaugural winner of the Les Murray Award for Refugee Recognition. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving the cure now. Diehard music fans. At the tender age of 52. (laughs) And a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online. Restricting and banning just hasn't worked. Come follow Earshot on the ABC Listen app. What path can I follow to not feel this anymore? 